I mean, how do we discover new things that we have never done before? The answer is by exhibiting genuine curiosity and listening more than you say. And here's the neat thing about it is that when you do this, something very powerful occurs, which we alluded to at the beginning, you discover unmet needs. You're listening to Becoming Wildly Resilient, brought to you by University of Kentucky Human Resources, Health and Wellness. In this series, we'll explore a variety of well-being topics with experts from the university community in physical, emotional, nutritional, and financial health. Join us, and together we'll discover how we can thrive at work, home, and beyond. Hello there, listener. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Becoming Wildly Resilient. I'm your host, Jacob Hester, and the voice you heard at the beginning is my guest for this episode, Dr. John Nash. John is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Leadership Studies in the UK College of Education, where he also serves as the Director of Graduate Studies. John is also the Director of UK's D-Lab, which is the Laboratory on Design Thinking. John earned a PhD in Educational Administration from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In this episode, we talk about taking a human-centered approach to fostering belonging and de-risking innovation in the workplace. You'll hear us discuss our need to experience belongingness, what human-centered design is and how it can help bolster belonging, as well as how we can ask better questions to discover and meet others' unmet needs. We also touch on a lot of other topics and terms, including drive theory, recognition, strengths, authenticity, curiosity, listening, and motivational interviewing. But before you head into our conversation, this is just a quick nudge to hit the follow button wherever you may be listening so that you don't miss any future episodes. And don't forget, you're also encouraged to reach out with any feedback or suggestions for future guests or topics. The best way to do that is by emailing us at healthandwellness at uky.edu. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. John Nash. Welcome, John. I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thanks, Jacob. Really excited to be here. Yeah. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and maybe your path to your role and some of your research interests? Yeah, I'm a professor, a design thinker and strategist. I help schools and colleges use design thinking to improve outcomes, expand their impact and increase the happiness of their students, faculty and the families they serve. Can you explain a little bit what design thinking is? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think we can call design thinking a solution finding process. Uh, and it's a method by which one can start to look at the unmet needs of others. And in uh, understanding those needs and defining the unmet needs around the challenge, you can de design solutions that make those people's lives better, can improve organizations, can improve society. So what got you interested in that initially? Well, you know, I can actually, I can trace a bright line from my current interests to my six years as a social research scientist at the Stanford Learning Lab. Uh, and it was there I was leading interdisciplinary and international teams of researchers and examining the effects of innovative technologies on learning. And one of my bosses, Larry Leifer, who's a founding member of the school, he opened my eyes to the world of design thinking and design research. And so since that time in the early 2000s, 
I've been interested in how to apply human-centered design, which is another term for design thinking, uh, in organizations and particularly in schools and colleges. So that drives my research interest. I'm really, my research interest now centers on how and why design thinking works or doesn't work as a lever for sustainable improvement in schools and colleges. Awesome. And we'll definitely be putting that knowledge to use in our conversations today. I'm talking about taking a human-centered approach to belonging. So I'm really excited to get into that. But before we do, um, in the last episode, I added a new sort of quick getting to know you segment um, to the show. So I've got these table topic conversation starters um, that just have like a random question on each card. So I'm going to pull one from the deck um, and then you and I are going to answer that question. So hopefully it's a good one. What was your favorite childhood meal? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. You got me digging. I'm running through dozens of meals I must have had as a child. And I don't know if it was my favorite, but it felt like, it felt like a, a, a treat, I guess, on those times when my mother would put a Swanson's TV dinner in front of me, and it was the Salisbury steak TV dinner from Swanson's. And then I would sit at the kitchen counter with the tiny Sony television in front of me all by myself. And yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. Mine, I'm going. I just it kind of sounds like a comfort food type of thing. Right. Uh, mine, mine is uh, chicken and dumplings for sure. Oh, for be, sure. Would be like a yeah. comfort food with a side of like um, homemade fresh green beans. That meal has crossed my path in the last two weeks, and I agree. If you'd asked me like, what is it recently, I might have said that. Yeah. Probably is still my go-to as well. But yeah, a lot of like sort of fond memories. And if I'm not feeling very good. Um, that's kind of like the the chicken soup for me, for right. sure. All right, so let's get into let's get into our topic for the day. So we recently had you on the Human Resources Leading with Care Virtual Summit that we hosted, um, and you basically talked about this human centered approach to belonging. Um, so I really thought it would be awesome to have you on here and sort of expand upon that conversation um, and bring it to the podcast um, to even more people um, who weren't able to attend that. So let's kind of lay the groundwork for our conversation with a basic definition of belonging. How would you define it? Well, we know that belonging is a need, uh, and it's actually explicitly listed in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And we're referring to Abraham Maslow, the American psychologist who's best known for creating Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And this is a theory of psychological health based on the idea that fulfilling innate human needs when they're prioritized in a certain order leads to this top issue of, of self-actualization or this top, this top phase. And so it happens that we're driven to secure belongingness. And, uh, because as a critical human need and Maslow described belongingness as one of the love needs, it's second only to physiological and safety security needs. And so when, According to Maslow, when the physiological and safety security needs are met, then people yearn next for affectionate relations with people in general. So in other words, belongingness is as important as the human need for love and love from one another. And so this need for human beings to have interpersonal attachments, it's actually fundamental to the species. And so researchers have concluded that belonging is innate and it's universal. It's found in every human society. 
Yeah, I think that like innateness and universality of it and um, just really tying it back into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like the, the word belonging is literally in um, that hierarchy. And so it's really interesting to think about because um, I don't I don't think we always think about it as a need necessarily and something that like we have to have um, to really thrive as human beings. So that's kind of that context into how does this fit into, you know, the idea of resilience or our well-being in general. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think for me too, I, I like I would define it as like being able to sort of connect with not only yourself, um, but sharing your authentic self with others as well. So really just that idea of, you know, feeling a part of something larger than ourselves. Um, but also as Brene Brown kind of talks about it in true belonging and like being able to feel like we belong to ourselves as well. So that that's where that sort of authenticity piece mm -hmm. comes in mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. And there's this interesting sort of quirk of belongingness that if it, if your need for belonging goes unfulfilled, then according at least to Maslow's theory, because love and belonging is in the first four levels, it's third, those first four levels are known as the deficit needs or the D needs. And this means that if you don't have enough of one of those four needs, among which is love and belonging, you'll have this feeling that you need to go get it, that you have this drive, you're going to have a drive, you're going to have a drive to go get this thing. Yeah, that was actually something you brought up in one of your presentations for us as well, was that that drive theory. So maybe talk about that for just a second. Yeah, sure. Dr drive theory is, is, to me, it's personally, I, I find it fascinating. Drive theory says that certain things are required by human beings for the continuation of their lives or their well-being. Now, let me break that down for a second. So first of all, certain things are required. Okay. They're required. This means that you must have them. You've got to have them. And who are they required by? Human beings. That's you. That's me. That's, that's all of us. And then why do we have to have them? Here's the part I love. For the continuation of our lives. And so drive theory says that there are certain things that all humans are driven to attain. And those things are needed to continue living and feel well. And so let's maybe, so you say then, well, what's a drive? Drive theory. So what's a drive? Well, drive is an activity of the total organism resulting from persistent disequilibrium. So let's break that down a second. Total organism, that's psychological fancy talk for you and me. And disequilibrium, that's fancy talk for an insufficiency. Or, and so what it means really out there is that something out there kind of sucks. It's just, it's not going right. It's not going well. So the definition of a drive is the need to meet a need. And so drive theory says that there are certain things that we need to continue for our, our existence and that we have a drive to go attain those. And as it happens, if belonging is not met, then you're going to have a drive to go attain that. Yeah, I think drive theory is really interesting, especially when you spoke about it, um, obviously just now, but um, in the presentation as well, and how it like it's a need to meet a need. And so it kind of, again, sort of breaks down that like why Maslow's hierarchy of needs are even important um, to begin with and then why why we sort of have this desire or this urge to fulfill those. Mm -hmm. um, so let's bring that into the context of like the workplace. Uh, what are some of like the, you know, key elements of belongingness? Well, um, there's a group called Coquall and they examined what managers and peers are likely to do when the elements of belonging exist in the workplace. And so if you're at work and you feel a high sense of belonging, then it 
means that it's likely that your manager is doing some of the following things. They're praising your work. They're providing you with some regular and candid feedback on how you can do better. They listen and they respond to your concerns. They publicly credit you for your contributions and they're empowering you to make decisions. Now, likewise, if you are feeling a high sense of belonging at work, your peers may be doing some of the following. They respect your commitments outside of work. They provide some timely and honest feedback as well on your work. They're also like your managers praising the work. They're thanking you and they're communicating openly and honestly about how you can both work together better. So you mentioned basically recognition twice um, in both of those examples, whether it's coming from like a manager or a leader um, or a supervisor, and then coming from your peers as well. Um, So there was some recent research that I saw from Gallup and the company WorkHuman. And um, it was really interesting. It was really kind of based around recognition. And they said that only like one third of companies had a formal program related to recognition. Um, and eight out of 10 senior leaders said that it wasn't a major strategic priority. Um, so in other words, what I take from that is like, there are, there's tons of work to be done in this space because we know it's one of those things that can help create belonging. We've already, um, sort of established that. Um, and then we know that like basically when recognition matches employees needs, there's that word again, um, and their expectations, there are huge boosts to you know things like retention and employee engagement, um, which are big initiatives at pretty much any company in the um, world right now. But they're also, again, bringing back in belonging, they're four times as likely to feel like they belong, um, which is Im- important. Again, we're talking about how do we how do we create that? Well, here's one avenue already that we can talk about, which is recognition. Right. And so I think it's important to think about the ways in which human-centered design can be supportive of people's thoughts on how to bring belonging in. I think there's, so there are hallmarks to human-centered design that one tends to see across different instantiations of it. Let me, I'll use the phases that are offered up by the Stanford D school as an example. It's you empathize with others and then you define a challenge from their point of view. You ideate or brainstorm solutions to that challenge. You prototype so, uh, possible solutions, and then you test those out. And so human-centered design is applied in a number of situations and contexts from, say, product development to improving human services. But what I see as the differentiating factor in human-centered design is the predication of that improvement that it seeks to make, the solution-finding process, on the uncovering of person's unmet needs. And this is where I think it's supportive of this idea of being able to foster belonging in the workplace. Yeah. And, and I, you mentioned one of the first words as like one of the hallmarks of design thinking or human centered design is empathy, which we just talked about um, in the previous episode on here. Um, but I also think about back to a previous episode. I think the first conversation I had with Amy Rock was cadet on here. She basically said, we're all just walking around trying to get our needs met. Um, so again, whether that's in a personal context or the work context or the kind of the blurred lines between the two of those things. Um, I think that's something important for us to remember um, when it comes to empathy and compassion as well as like knowing that whoever you're interacting with, they've got the same, again, going back to Maslow, they've got the same basic needs that you have and they're trying to get those met as well. So how can we um, as an institution or how can we as a unit or how can we as a team or um, collaborators or whatever sort of level you want to look at that, how can we get to that point? 
um, where we are feeling like we belong. Yes. Yes. And I think this is even more important now uh, in the work to create a diverse and equitable workplace. In the Coqual study I referred to a couple of minutes ago, they their results of uh, college-educated professionals conducted just before the pandemic showed, probably not surprisingly, that white men and women have the highest median belonging scores and, compared to other races and ethnicities, and Asian and black women have the lowest. And so as we think about creating belonging in the workplace, I think it's important now for unit leaders, organizations, even, yeah, at the at the highest levels of the organization to set a culture where we are thinking about how to cultivate belonging in, in real practical ways. Yeah. I'm really basically kind of foreshadowing um, future episodes. I really am kind of using this as a jumping off point to start diving into those topics as well um, with maybe specific groups or specific ideas. Um, so that's why I wanted to have you on um, to kind of talk about this in, in sort of that general sense um, and some approaches we can take to get there. Um, again, sort of laying that groundwork for um, future conversations around, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, or more conversations on belonging, because we know it is so important to our well-being and to our resilience and uh, just to how we function and thrive at home and work, which are, again, are sort of the key drivers to this entire podcast. So, and you can start to see the connections um, that we're making and again, sort of laying that groundwork for that future too. But you also you also kind of mentioned some like really simplistic elements um, to belonging in the workplace. Um, I think there were like four of those. Maybe can you can you list those out for our listeners? Right. So there are some key elements of belongingness uh, that are particularly important in the workplace. Uh, this research by Coquall and it was in, presented in the Harvard Business Review suggests that they are as follows. First element is being seen. And so when you are seen at work, you are recognized, you're rewarded, and your colleagues respect you. The second one is connected. And this element of workplace belonging means that when you're connected at work, you have these positive, authentic social interactions with your work peers and your leaders and managers and other senior leaders. You can see how that part there with that, that, no matter where you are on the hierarchy of the organization, these authentic social interactions are important to have all the way up to the top. That's part of being connected. So at a university, that would be as much as saying an administrative assistant feels that connection to the provost or the president of the institution. That's, I say, puts a lot of uh, onus of this work, not only on immediate managers, but also the organization in general. This third element is supported. And so when you're supported at work, your peers and the leaders are giving you what you need to get your job done and have a fulfilling life at work. And I think that those are the words there that we've been kind of touching on is that you want to feel like uh, you have a fulfilling experience and life in your workplace. And the last one is proud. And so when you're proud of your work and your organization, then you feel aligned to its purpose, vision and values. So those are the four that seem really important right now on this research that we've looked at. And so, I mean, looking at it from the other context and the things that I've read, even like hearing what happens when these things go unfulfilled at work. Um, so you see like that stifling of individuality. So that authenticity is removed. Um, yes. Things like creativity are removed. Um, we've already talked about there's a lack of connection. Or there's some sort of disconnection. 
Um, and that like chain reaction leads to things like less innovation or uh, that disconnection leading to things like burnout. Yes. Or people are more likely to start looking for a new job. Um, so they're sort of, they have this discontent with where they are and they're, they don't have that purpose anymore. Um, and then there's things like less engagement. Yep. Um, so you're seeing kind of the opposites of that um, when you don't feel like you're being seen, when you don't feel connected, when you don't feel like you're getting what you need, you don't feel that support. Um, you're also less likely to be recommending that workplace to someone else. Um, so mm -hmm. at really, again, it comes back to sort of that word of authenticity and bringing sort of your whole self, your authentic self to to the workplace or wherever that is, is you're wanting to feel like you're belonging. And being allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. And as we were noting before, it sort of goes to say, if you don't feel seen, connected, supported, or proud in your work, then you're, you're back to this place we talked about a minute ago with the, with the D needs being unfulfilled. And if you don't get enough of those four needs, then you uh, have a feeling you're going to have to go get it. And if the organization and your workplace and your leaders and your peers are not in a position to help you get that need fulfilled, you're going to do the things to fulfill it that you just mentioned. You're going to go outside the organization. You're going to, maybe you're going to leave, or you're going to do actions to fulfill that need that aren't consistent with what you'd like to have happen in your workplace. And I think it's important to note too, that it doesn't require you to change who you are <laughs> no, and, it, no. and you should not be requiring others to change no. who they kind of fundamentally are um, as their authentic selves. It really requires you to be who you are, um, not change who you are. So in other words, it's really, it's not about like fitting in um, or seeking approval because um, then you get into things like, you know, echo chambers and that sort of thing too, which can have detriments as well. No, you're right. Exactly. Except I would say that where change has to occur is on the part of leadership inside the organization, inside the units, because that was really nice what you said, that it doesn't require change on the part of the person who's come to work, except it, depending on your position in the hierarchy. And if you supervise others, I would argue that supervisors and leaders need to be thoughtful about changing their own ways in which they engage with others so that those others can be authentic and bring themselves to work. And then, of course, those supervisors and leaders must also feel safe and feel belonging. But that onus goes upon the, the folks above them. So I think it's a, it's a leadership issue in many ways. Yeah, I think, it, again, it's, it's kind of about like leveraging strengths and that sort of thing rather than like, again, sort of changing that that fundamentalness of a, a human being. It's um, if you look at like a, a strengths-based model, you're not necessarily looking at deficiencies. You're looking at leveraging and taking those things that someone does really well. Um, so in the strengths-based model, like there's, you know, 32 or 34 of those that are listed um, and you identify in order kind of what are they are for you um, based on the assessment that you take. But um, if you kind of break that out into sort of a holistic look, um, it's really about kind of taking the best parts of people and using those to your advantage. So you're not saying like, you're good at this, but I need you to do this and you need to be this instead. Whereas like somebody else may fulfill that sort of need within your group. Um, and then you as like an individual have this contribution um, that they come to you for um, as well. So does, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's, you're on the right track there. So we've sort of talked about human-centeredness as well. So can you kind of explain what this means in this context or sort of define it as well? Yeah, I think being human-centered has to do with the steps that I mentioned before and sort of these phases of a human-centered design approach. 
But I think the defining factor that brings value to the workplace from a human-centered approach is this idea of empathy uh, and being curious. I think that the first best thing that anyone can do is be curious. It's easy to adopt and it costs you nothing. And so can I talk a little bit about this uh, further? I think that yeah, this yeah, is the, kind of the, this is kind of the interesting, uh, virtuous cycle that curiosity brings to creating belongingness. So being curious is parking your notions of what's right and what's wrong. Uh, parking ideas about what's to be done and how things should be run. And as you do that, you take this first step in being more human-centered. We call it sort of operating with beginner's eyes. And this begins this virtuous cycle because when you're curious, you can listen more. And when you listen to what people have to say, you're actually in a good position to nurture risk-taking. And when you can nurture risk-taking, then you're starting to nurture innovation, better ideas, making things better in the workplace. I mean, how do we discover new things that we have never done before? The answer is by exhibiting genuine curiosity and listening more than you say. And here's the neat thing about it is that when you do this, something very powerful occurs, which we alluded to at the beginning, you discover unmet needs. And when you discover people's unmet needs, you can ask for ideas on how to solve those unmet needs. You see, you're remaining curious throughout all of this. And as a fellow human being, you start to inquire about, say, you know, what's happening in other people's lives and how the workplace is going and what might need improvement. And then you show that you've heard these ideas by saying things like, huh, well, what might we do to solve that? Or do you have ideas? And so two good things immediately happen here. First, the other person feels belonging. And second, you've removed the burden that you might carry to have all the answers. It's what uh, James Sarawecki calls leveraging the wisdom of the crowd. Um, because if you're at work and you feel a high sense of belonging, among the things your manager may be doing is empowering you to make decisions. And so that empowerment, I argue, comes through a leader's curiosity. And, but, but if you don't do this, then you risk cultivating a culture where your coworkers, maybe your peers, the people that work for you, they feel it's risky to voice their ideas or raise topics about their unmet needs. Yeah, we see to that last point there, we see that in like literature with like psychological safety. Yes. Um, I think I've referred to that in the past with like Amy Edmondson um, and, and her group of researchers that work on psychological safety. That's kind of the, the core of, of that. Um, but let's jump back to sort of the early parts because um, we kind of we have sort of two parts I want to dive into here um, and looking at curiosity and listening um, is one piece. Um, so how do we how do we do that? Because, I mean, it, it sounds easy enough to do like, hey, I'll just be more curious, but how do I actually become more curious? That's, that's a great question because I don't want to oversimplify the fact to say, oh, just go ask questions. Um, why aren't people more curious with each other in this way? I think 
that part of it is just that human beings are have their own nature of uh, notions of how the world should work, uh, the way they think things should be run, uh, depending on how they were socialized in their younger lives or in their previous workplace, they might have uh, what I would argue are antiquated notions of uh, power and hierarchy. Um, sometimes uh, being curious or exposing oneself to uh, getting the opinions of others uh, is deemed a, a feeling of, not a feeling, is deemed a, uh, an ex exhibition of weakness, uh, that it could show that you don't have the, all, all the answers. Um, I'll take just a brief example from uh, our own uh, academic work at the University of Kentucky. I'm in the Department of Educational Leadership Studies. We uh, ostensibly prepare Kentucky's public school principals and superintendents, <clears throat> and we do a good job of that. But if you take a hard look at our curriculum and what we do, we um, essentially uh, have students run through a curriculum and we uh, graduate them. We benevolently kick them out to the world where they go lead schools. Then we say, go lead. And I don't believe, we're, we're getting better at this, but I don't believe we do enough to train our leaders to be able to do as a referencing to Sarawaki, which is leverage this wisdom of the crowd. We, we accidentally imbue them with the notion that they have to have all the answers and they have to lead this place to some, some great destination when actually the, the real value comes from understanding how to work with those around you solicit their thoughts and ideas on the direction and then shepherd that forward. And so that's why I think this human-centered approach is very useful because what it does firstly, as we've been talking through today, is this idea that being empathetic and understanding where others have ideas can be very valuable because you can't possibly have all the ideas. You can't. It's just impossible. Yeah, and it's a very vulnerable process as well. Um, and like saying, I... I know what I know and I know what I don't know, um, potentially, or I don't know what I don't know, um, even, which is where that we're really where that curiosity kind of comes into play. Yes. Um, and it's really, I mean, it, to me, like curiosity is like, a, it's, it's basically a, a positive feedback loop. Like the more you know, the more you want to know. Yes. And then the more you want to know, it requires you to, you know, listen and learn a little bit more, which sort of feeds that cycle. Then you learn a little bit more. Um, and so that's I've I've noticed that doing this podcast and preparing for episodes or having these conversations, uh, there'll be a little nugget of something that I'll pick up on. And I start pulling that string and I'm like, oh, I need to learn a little bit more about this. And suddenly my like reading list is like 14 books long. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even know how I'm going to ever get through the end of this list. Um, so I have to like prioritize. But I mean, I can see that and like feel that in action um, and how that is really just kind of fuels itself. Um, but I think another thing that like I try to get through with this podcast as well is like we're obviously we're talking for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour um, in most of these episodes. Um, so it's really about priming the pump, um, so to speak. So it's really getting that sort of intriguing information so that you feel the need um, or the desire to go learn a little bit more and dive a little bit deeper. And then you find other avenues and continues to sort of like branch off um, as you go. Yeah. It, it's interesting because no, no leader can possibly know everything that needs to be done or what needs attention on their own from their from their chair. 
uh, in their office. The, the people that are working directly with students or customers or stakeholders that are further down closer to the proverbial shop floor are the ones who have the most knowledge about what really works and doesn't work. They're the people to be tapped into. Um, and so I think that that's really important to think about. There's a, a quote that I enjoy from a guy named Steve Blank, who is a, an um, a entrepreneur in Silicon Valley and wrote a book called The Startup Owner's Manual. But um, he talks about how uh, startup leaders need to get out of their office and go talk directly to customers. I think the analogy works in higher education and in schools that um, the leaders need to get out and go talk to students, go talk to uh, all the staff and really understand what's going on there. Because as Blank says, he says, uh, you know, no business plan survives first contact with a customer. And so you can plan all day long, but until you actually let someone try this out, then you know nothing will ever happen. So my my corollary to that with design thinking is no prototype survives first contact with a user. So I mean you can't throw an idea out the window uh, or, or from your um, not out the window, but a leader can't throw an idea over the transom uh, into the workspace and expect it to work right off the bat. You've got to you've got to talk to people. You have to be curious about your own ideas, test them out, and then then you can see what might be worth trying. Yeah, I think that to me, um, it's kind of summarized in the quote that's typically attributed to Teddy Roosevelt, which is people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yes, true. To me, that's how I feel about this conversation um, and being like human centered because it's really it's really about that employee experience and the human outcomes to why you're doing this. Um, and I think that's been a like a big fundamental drastic shift over the last few years um, and how like leaders are approaching the workplace and you're seeing more and more and more of this research coming out to support this as well. Um, but it, mm-hmm. it has that connotation of being something that's like, you know, soft or slow or tedious. So kind of what do you say to that? I say, I think about uh, a great quote from Guy Kawasaki who said, uh, if you're not embarrassed by what you put out there, you waited too long to launch. And so this goes back to the vulnerability idea and the idea that um, you, can't, um, you can't wait for perfection uh, before you put something out there. You have to put it out there early and be curious about what people say about it. So share it with your peers, your coworkers, get their ideas about it, show it to the people at the end of the line, whether it's a customer or a student or a, another stakeholder, a parent. Uh, and get their feedback before it's fully baked because um, you have to be a little bit scared to put it out there. You have to be um, a little bit embarrassed. It's undone, unbaked, uh, but it's only after people see it that you're going to find out. And it's not a referendum on your ideas. Your ideas are really, at the end of the day, not that precious. The, uh, the, what's precious is the feedback that you get on making something that makes other people's lives better, helping them belong, helping them want to be a part of something. And part of that feedback process is listening. So that's a perfect segue into kind of what I want to talk about now, which is like, how, how do we get better at listening even? Um, so we talked about how, how we can kind of spark some more curiosity, but how do we get better once we are trying to get that feedback? How do we listen to that um, feedback better? Or how, as like a leader, do we listen to, you know, our employees better? Well, uh, a part of it is um, asking good questions 
asking questions that don't end with a yes or no answer. So, um, and then really, yeah, <laughs> closing, closing your mouth. I'm sorry, but you've just got to, uh, Chris, I think Chris Doe says, uh, you know, we have uh, two ears and one mouth. That means we should be listening twice as much as we should be talking. And so uh, I think it's that. And then it's following up and being uh, empathetic to what people are going through. I think that that's important as well. Yeah, I mean, you're hearing like the development of EQ skills, uh, which was an episode we dove into um, a few episodes back as well. But things like removing judgment, um, I think a little bit of that is also um, not only is that part of closing your mouth <laughs> and, and just actually listening, um, but that's also an internal process that you have to. And you've, you've almost basically kind of spoken about this is like that openness to what others have to offer. Um, so if you can remove that judgment, that or if you can be more open, it allows you to remove that judgment a little bit more. Um, and then something else I think about too, like we in previous episodes, we've talked about like limiting distractions um, in different ways. And so that, I mean, that could be like putting cell phones away and stuff when you're having these conversations, like that type of thing. Or um, I mean, employing, you know, mindfulness before you go into a meeting so that you've kind of removed the stuff that has been kind of floating around in your head um, and created that space to be able to listen. Um, so removing distractions could be a lot of different things. So it's a very individualized process potentially. Um, but like thinking about that idea, what before you go into a meeting or um, before you elicit feedback or something like that, kind of ask yourself what, what could be standing in the way right now? Um, and what do I sort of need to let go even momentarily so that I get the most out of this experience um, and continue, you know, to learn. Right. Right. I think um, it's also important to remember that when people are expressing their needs or their ideas, those are valid ideas. They are the expert of their own experience. I mean, who, who among us hasn't been silently thinking in a conversation? That's insane. I, that's this, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And, that is a kind of self-talk that we need to work to switch out with empathy and curiosity because they are the expert of their own domain and therefore that should be honored and listened through and, and accepted. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think that's where good questions come in too. When you say like you have this sort of initial judgmental type of reaction, like, oh, this is the dumbest thing I've heard in a long time. Turn that into a question. Tell me more. Why is that? How did you get to that conclusion? And that allows that person to go a little deeper. And then you understand, oh, this is how we got here. And maybe you learned something new. Maybe they learned something new. Maybe you both learned something new. Right. I mean, you can ask things like, um, what about this is important to you? And that opens up a lot of really helpful ideas because oftentimes people may be using synonyms or other terminology for something else. And you've just, you've just internalized it with what you perceive the words to mean. Um, you can ask questions like, what's the objective or what are we trying to accomplish here? What would you like to accomplish uh, by doing that? And if you ask it in a nice, non-judgmental way, really, you know, sort of like um, uh, it reminds me of what Chris Voss advised. He wrote the book, Never Split the Difference. You have to use your FM DJ radio voice, which is you're, you're posing questions that if intonated in the wrong way could seem challenging or put someone on the defensive. But if you ask, you know, like, wow, that's really cool. So what are you trying to accomplish there? Or what would, what, what could we really accomplish by doing that? Or that sounds important to you. What feels important to you about that? 
then you start to really open up a conversation that is uh, helpful. That's a really interesting way to put that. I've never considered that. And I mean, I think that's, that's now the podcast voice too, but I haven't thought about taking that same sort of mindset and that same like sort of curious process into an actual conversation as well. So that's a really interesting way to put that into sort of visualize, like how can I tangibly put this into practice? Um, but I, I really like how you said like everyone is the expert of their own experience. And that's kind of at the core of what we do in health and wellness, really. I don't know how many times, like if I've been working with an individual that I've said, like, you're the expert, we're here to kind of help guide you. Um, you know what's best for you. And like the looks that I get back every time that I say that, it's like at least 50% of the time somebody gives me this blank look like, I'm the expert. I was like, yeah, you actually are. You know yourself better um, than we do. Um, or if I'm doing work with like a, a committee um, or somewhere like that as well. Same thing. Like you all know your employees better than I know them. So I'm not coming in with this preconceived notion of this is what's wrong with this area. And this is what is the solution to this area. Um, right. I'm coming in with asking more questions than I have answers. And the more that you ask those questions, the more they start to kind of figure it out for themselves too, which is really nice because they're already bought into it and they just needed help kind of connecting the dots potentially. So that's what I really value about like the work that I specifically do, but just how we approach it um, within our department as well. But really it comes back to motivational interviewing, which is uh, that ORS principle, which starts with open-ended questions. So you already mentioned that one. You're not asking yes or no questions. You're asking questions that really are sort of broad um, and it lets that person do most of the talking um, and it really allows for elaboration. Um, and then as you start to get this active process um, with doing things like affirmation, that's where your empathy comes in. Um, it's an opportunity for you to, you know, recognize and reinforce successes and really show that empathy and like that care that you have. Um, and then you're also the R of that is reflective listening, um, which is you're, you know, basically repeating or restating what you're hearing, um, which is something that I've tried to get yes. a lot better at as a podcast host. It's like I hear something, I'm going to restate this and see if I understood it correctly. Um, so that the guests also understand it correctly. Yeah. Um, and the final piece of that, that S is summarizing. So kind of bringing it all together, um, that entirety of that conversation so that you can kind of transition that into action um, when we're talking about it in this context of like, how do we use this human-centered approach to create more belonging? So what what are the tangible things that we can actually do from what we learn from this conversation? Yeah, that, that next to last one there about sort of mirroring the responses. I was a, when I was an undergraduate at the University of California, Santa Barbara, I was a volunteer on the Santa Barbara County crisis hotline. And we, uh, we called those level three responses where you, no matter what the person who is in crisis was calling about, when, when they said something, you validated their, what they were saying by essentially repeating it back. And it took us a while to get used to that through the training because it just sounded like we were mimicking or sort of, and and it, it, it's actually not. And that's not what the person hears back. That What they hear is, you heard them. And that's really important. The other interesting thing you bring up there is this idea of people really understanding the organization by talking to people whose lives are really affected by it. We take this to the extreme in my research work with uh, public schools, but um, most, you know, take, take a, an average sized elementary or middle school of uh, 1000 students run by uh, two dozen adults, um, all um, sort of managed without the voice of the 
thousand people who are affected by it every day, the kids. Kids have virtually no voice or agency in the way schools are run, and yet they're directly impacted. One of the premier principles of design thinking is to keep the people who are most affected by the changes that you seek to make as close to you as possible and use them as advisors. And we, we call this co-design. And so we, we encourage school leaders, superintendents on down principals, assistant principals, counselors to turn students into their policy uh, partners. We've worked with uh, fifth graders, fourth graders up through high school, uh, thinking about the most sticky problems related to curriculum, policy, use of technology in schools. And kids know, as you said, kids know exactly where the problems are. We have a wonderful question we ask, have, have adults ask kids, and it can work in an organization too, but we, uh, and it's very eye-opening. But you, you, if you have a school principal ask a student, What's something going on in the school that the principal should know about, but they don't? Um, this, this is a very enlightening. I mean, because uh, it tells you a lot about things that are missing from the agenda of change for the organization. Yeah, yeah. When you're talking about in the organizational and applying this to workplaces, that's how you learn about your culture, too, and what is actually happening on the ground. Um, and you said, again, keeping them, keeping them close to you and, and leveraging the wisdom of the crowd, as you mentioned earlier. Um, which is, again, more brains are going to be better than one, <laughs> no that's matter right. how many brains that is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. the more kind of, and that's that's where we get into things like diversity of thought um, and diversity of experience and, and backgrounds and those types of things. That's yeah. where the importance of, um, to me, is diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's a saying at IDEO, all of us are smarter than any of us. Mm, that's a good one, too. That's a good like little little quippy maxim there. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want to jump back now. I'm really circling back um, to one of your earlier answers where I, I said we had this kind of divergent of two things I wanted to talk about. The second piece of that was that de-risking of innovation. So how does this human-centered approach really lead us to de-risk innovation? And what does that even mean? Being human-centered in the workplace de-risks innovation because leaders express genuine curiosity for where there are gaps in the organization or in the lives of the people that work in the organization, these gaps oftentimes are some form of an unmet need. Uh, and when people can express their unmet needs in a way that gives the leadership an opportunity to put resources on meeting those needs, then you're in a position to create a culture where those around you are interested in giving more ideas and it may be even innovative ideas. As we talked about earlier, leaders can't possibly know where all the levers are and the sort of corners where improvements can be made. And so they've got to get that information from those around them. And then once you have an idea uh, for improvement uh, that seems innovative, test it out in small ways and don't don't take personal ownership of its success. As I said, the, the ideas themselves are not precious. Uh, it's the feedback you get on whether that idea works and improves others' lives. It's not about you, it's about others. Um, my friend Dan Gilbert and I like to talk about how design thinking and human-centered designs, really it's overarching purpose is to make people's lives better. And so if you're thinking about how the feedback helps you do that and not whether or not you're a good or bad person because your ideas are good or bad, then you're in a better position to move things forward. It's interesting that you say like ideas are good or bad because we've talked about that in the context of feelings before and that like feelings are not objectives. They're really, they're just data. 
um, they they don't you don't you don't really want to attach good or bad to feelings because they're just naturally occurring things. Um, so it's kind of like an interesting parallel um, that I'm drawing to, which is yeah. something that I hadn't really considered. When when I when I teach my students design thinking in my course. Um, we run through these steps. And so the phases, as I mentioned before, run through sort of you do some empathy work and you, you're understanding the unmet needs of others and then define the problem in a way that you can brainstorm solutions to that challenge. And then you test the most promising uh, idea out on that challenge to see if it helps it. And by the time you get to that part where you're testing these ideas, um, many students are, again, they're sort of personally invested in their prototype. They think, this is great. They're going to love this. I'm going to make someone's life better. And then it turns out it's awful and that the people don't like it at all. Um, and this is where I said, your ideas are not precious. The feedback is the gold. Because really, all you're doing is not really making something that you're proud of. The entire purpose is to understand the others that you're helping and so you do that in this empathy phase where you get to, you talk with them and you're curious. But when you get to the prototype testing phase, you substitute this idea that I'm testing the value of a thing. And it's actually no, you getting to know the person better because how they react to your prototype, how they act to what you made, how they feel and think and what they recommend about it. That's what you want to know. Not whether or not what you made is any good. You don't care about that. You care about getting to know how the other person thinks and feels. Yeah. And that's where those skills of curiosity and listening and that type of emotional intelligence, all of those things, um, those skills start to, right. again, sort of bringing those back full circle and yes. how, how we move forward with that. So do you have any other like sort of basic tips or suggestions for how people can start to become uh, more human centered or where will we run into potential, you know, hurdles or barriers? I, I think, I think part of it could be uh, fear of starting. I think it does put someone who's not accustomed to asking questions in the workplace, uh, like what we're suggesting, uh, could make them feel more vulnerable than they're accustomed to. And they could be, there could be some fear. There could be some, some trepidation about trying to start like that. So I think, uh, really just this idea of being human centered is the way that you can get through that, that which is defined as, um, this idea, as I mentioned before, of keeping the people that are, around you that are going to whose lives you're going to help improve and help them feel belonging keeping them as close to you as possible you have to get to know them a little bit and so i think uh, what can keep you from doing that is this fear of saying well is this the appropriate thing to do in the workplace is this the is this professional and i think that it's perfectly acceptable to do that um, and you've just got to start yeah and that requires a high level of trust um, so, I, I mean, I think those are future topics for the for the podcast and, and looking at the idea of trust and looking at the idea of fear and how these play into, you know, our resilience and our overall well-being. Um, so that, that's me opening up that curiosity um, to something that you just said. <laughs> it's like I hear the I hear the words trust. I'm like, oh, that's something that I probably need to pull some more strings on. Um, it's something that I'm now more curious about um, that is spurred from this conversation. So, you're again, you're kind of seeing this in action. Um, because our conversation has been a lot more uh, organic, so to speak, I think, than um, what I normally would potentially do. Um, so I was kind of hoping that that would actually happen in our conversation, knowing that the kind of the fundamentals and having heard you speak on this topic before. Um, so you as a listener kind of hearing this play out in real time and us trying to apply some of these principles um, to to our conversation. 
I think there's a couple of things that you can keep in your back pocket too, as you have these conversations, oftentimes, particularly if you're in a leadership role, um, your coworkers and your peers and those that work with you in your office may come to you and ask you what you think about a problem because they have traditional notions of what leaders should do and what do you think? And, um, that can trap you into thinking that you've got to come up with the answers. And it also moves you out of the place to be curious about what other people really think. And so when someone asks you, um, what do you think we ought to do here? I think two things you can say back are instead of answering directly say, um, I don't know, what do you think? And then let the silence, I, I, I do this with my students, but you have to win the battle for silence. Even count to seven in your head and say nothing because you want to hear back. And then they'll, if they give you an answer, then here's your reply because you don't want to react to that either. I would say you say something like, interesting, walk me through your thinking there. And you know, use that FMDJ voice and just then, then you've now you've been really curious with two simple questions and they unpack their full rational think, rationale of thinking on their idea that they wanted you to answer. Yeah, that's really interesting too, because you talked about some of the ways that like belonging is expressed. Um, and so I think that's tying back to one of those earlier answers in how like really responding to concerns. Yes. Um, so it's, I think a trap that you could get caught in as well is that you ask these questions with no intention to act, which, <laughs> which or is listen. a state. Yeah. Or, or listen for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. If, even if you are willing to listen, sometimes you, like you have to sort of be willing to make some moves towards what you learn as well and being adaptive and reactive to that. So again, being not only resilient as an individual, but being resilient as, you know, as like a department or a unit or what have you kind of where that level is. Um, so I, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty interesting. So we've basically, we kind of started at the end goal with belonging um, and we really kind of worked backwards, but we sort of jumped all over the place a little bit. Um, so I know you actually kind of sketched out a change model that pieces our entire conversation together. Um, so can you maybe just explain what that looks like? Yeah, sure. You can imagine a, a chart of boxes going from left to right, each with an idea inside it. And so basically I think that we create belonging, which is at the, at the far right of this model by, uh, cultivating this model of care by being curious and listening more. So when you, you ex exhibit curiosity, you're in a position to listen and then you must listen. And then this allows you to identify and address unmet needs. You'll hear unmet needs and this empowers others to take risks that they may not otherwise take. And those risks include very simple, what we might consider really simple and like non-threatening things, but they're very important. It's the risk of offering ideas that might, they might be otherwise silent about. Um, they then are able to spark some innovation, maybe foster belonging from there because you're starting to listen to the things that they feel are important and then acting on them. 
So for those visual folks like myself, um, you actually had like a little LinkedIn article um, that actually included that in there. So if you're okay with that, I'll actually link to that in the show notes yeah. as well. So those people who want to kind of put it um, in, in a visual format and if that's easier for you to understand it that way um, rather than, than hearing the steps one by one, um, I know that's, that's definitely helpful for me. So I'll stick that in the, um, in the show notes. But on that note, what other resources do you recommend people to dive deeper into the topics on like needs or belonging or human-centered design? Mm, sure. Um, I, think, I think it's really good for people to look at the key findings from the Power of Belonging report. And uh, we can get a, a link to folks uh, through the show notes, I think, probably. Mm -hmm. um, that's got the, uh, in this, it summarizes well some of the research that we talked about today uh, and these four key areas, the things that peers and managers can do. Um, I think the book, uh, Belonging, the Key to Transforming and Maintaining Diversity, Inclusion, and Equality at Work, uh, that's by Jacob Underman and Edwards. It looks at the role of belonging in advancing diversity and equality in the workplace. Um, so those are two things that I think are important, thinking about this issue of belonging and its importance. Uh, if folks are interested in issues related to design thinking and human-centered design and the work we do at UK around that, they can visit our lab's website, uh, Laboratory on Design Thinking, and we are at dlab.uky.edu. Perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll put that in there. And I know you've done, um, you've collaborated with HR um, on some other projects, and and I've seen this put into practice um, as well. So it's really it's really interesting, and I think it is a really valuable um, tool for people to start implementing, um, so that we can again sort of begin to be a little more innovative and, and de-risk that innovation uh, while still creating a culture of belonging. So our Wildly Resilient playlist is still going. Um, it's now on Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube Music. Um, so your chance now has come to contribute to that playlist. So what song brings about a sense of you know resilience or belonging in your life? I'm going to recommend the song Eyes of the World by the Grateful Dead. This is the third Grateful Dead song. This makes me so happy. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, you know what, for me, this song, it brings a sense of resilience in my life because it's a reminder that by being in the world, we change it. And at the same time, seeing the world changes us. Plus, it's just a great song. Yeah, I had I had Ripple um, in my original five songs. And I'm trying to think what Ann Bassoni had, uh, one of my colleagues, one of the mental health therapists. I'm trying to remember which one she originally gave me. She, she, I've had her on twice now, and she tried to give me a second Grateful Dead song. I was like, I can't put, can't put too many in there. I was like, we're going to have to create our own little side projects. Uh, right. But I'm going to let yours fly because you're a new guest. You're a different guest. So um, yeah, now we got now we got three songs on there. So just limit one dead song per person. Yeah, basically, sure. I think yeah. that's what I'm going to have to do in the future. Is just limit it to one per person. Uh, yeah, so now we're to the last word. So what's the one thing you hope listeners take away from this conversation? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, I hope folks can take away the idea that being more curious in a way that allows you to listen and learn from others can be empowering to both you and to those that you're hearing from. I think that's a perfect closing because I think that's what I gained from this conversation was getting a little more curious um, where that's going to lead me. And I, I, like I said, I, I mentioned it already. I've set aside the way that I typically try to do these conversations and tried to be a little more open 
um, and really listen a little bit more and respond to what I'm hearing um, rather than not sticking to a script because I don't script any of this, but um, at least not trying to follow one um, distinct path and really kind of mm -hmm. letting it go where it goes. So I really enjoyed it. I got a lot of value out of this personally. Um, I hope the listeners did as well. So thank you so much for bringing your knowledge and spurring some of that curiosity. Well, thank you, Jacob. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. That'll do it for this episode. In your upcoming conversations, I encourage you to apply your FM DJ podcast voice. Use your curiosity to ask empathetic, open-ended questions, and then fight that urge to do most of the talking so that you can truly listen. Or as Dr. John Nash put it, win the battle for silence. See what you discover. If that involves some unmet needs, dig in further to see how you can help address them. If you would like additional support in discovering unmet needs in yourself or others, University of Kentucky employees, retirees, and their respective spouses can meet with one of our two in-house health coaches for a free consult. They also offer free workshops, programs, and presentations throughout the year. Finally, as always, be sure to check the show notes to find any links to anything mentioned in the episode, as well as a link to the HR calendar. There you can browse any additional upcoming work life and well-being events from University of Kentucky Human Resources. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and stay well. Thanks for listening to Becoming Wildly Resilient, a podcast series from University of Kentucky Human Resources, Health and Wellness. The UK HR Health and Wellness team, consisting of certified health coaches, fitness experts, registered dietitians, and wellness specialists, offer a wide range of online and in-person programming to University of Kentucky employees, retirees, and their spouses. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen and subscribe to future episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching at UKY Wellness. There, you'll find links to episode show notes and more. You can also email healthandwellness at uky.edu with any questions or suggestions for future episode topics. To learn more about well-being benefits offered by University of Kentucky Human Resources, visit www.uky.edu slash hr slash well-being. Live well.